Brooks. I'm David Goldstein. And I am Brian Brinkman. You are listening to episode 19 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other non-jam bands that we think that they might enjoy. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. But, for example, let's say one day you find yourself, you've maybe colluded with Russia, and you've gotten, you're indicted. So you got to turn yourself over to the FBI. There's going to be charges. And if they start asking you questions and find out that all you listened to was fish, you're going to be extremely embarrassed. So at the very least, we are preparing you for indictment. We don't want them to find any of the uh, dirty, rotten fish shows that you've got. Only fish shows in your uh, email inbox, all right? We're here to help yeah. you through this. Not either, not just disco biscuits and string cheese either. There's got to be, uh, <laughs> there's got to be something, there's got to be something more to this. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our 19th episode, uh, and we are going to be talking about our first mic song. Uh, we're going to be talking about a mic song from November 6th, 1996 from Knoxville. This is our first mic song? This is our it's hard, first, first it's hard to song. believe. Very hard to believe. But uh, we're here. Uh, this is 11-6-96 from Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, so those of you who have been here before, you know how this all works. Those of you who are new, what we do, we talk about a specific fish jam. We break that jam down, give you some contextual uh, um, surrounding information about the jam, you know, what was happening on the tour, what we think is pretty noteworthy about the jam. And then from there, we uh, launch into a couple different sections where we introduce you to a few bands, usually somewhere in the range of four to six bands that we think either sonically have something to do with the uh, jam we listen to, or in some larger theme, uh, maybe be it music history, maybe be it kind of where Fish was at at that point in time. Um, but we try to introduce you guys to some bands that uh, may have gone overlooked at some point, and uh, we think are definitely worth your time if you enjoy Fish. And some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include when drum and bass take center stage, this is a preview of our new sound. And the obsolete frontman. And on that note, let's get to the fish. November 6, 1996, Mike Songs. Why are we talking about this jam? This jam is where you really start to hear the lessons of the talking heads remain in light uh, start to take hold in the band. So just a week earlier, Fish had covered Remain in Light in full during the second set of their October 31st, 1996 show in Atlanta, Georgia. And this album is an incredibly transcendent piece of uh, art. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. I've got to imagine, David, this is up there for you as well. Am I wrong? Top 20, certainly. Very, very influential album. I would say there's a large chunk of us out there who this record has meant a ton to at some point in time. And even if it hasn't directly, it's directly impacted a lot of music that we all listen to. 
Um, the, that, the same can be said for the band. And you really hear in this jam, in two sections in particular, where the lessons of that album, the minimalism, the linear musical communication that the band was trying to play with at that point in time, really starts to seep in. So from a sonic standpoint, this jam, the first 10 minutes or so are really a very traditional mic song and almost it could sound in a lot of cases like uh, your average 2.0, 3.0 mic song that goes through the first jam segment and then filters off into I Am Hydrogen or Simple or something else. But this goes into a big 13-minute drum and bass segment that is then followed by a really methodical rhythmic section where Trey just essentially tries to disappear on stage. And this whole section is highlighted, the whole jam is highlighted by Paige using nearly every keyboard in his arsenal. And really the only thing that Trey does is lay down wah riffs over and over and over again. It's almost as though he's getting ready to play the Doobie Brothers listen to the music at some point. Um, This jam is very danceable. It's very funky. It sounds like a preview of fall 1997 one year early. And uh, most of this is due to Trey's wah riffs. And wah riffing was hardly a given at this point in time. It really wasn't a style that the band played in. If you know anything about like 94, 95, and early 96 jamming, there are rare cases where the band finds a singular groove and stretches that out over six or seven minutes like they did in 97, 98, 99, and 2000. And you really hear the origins of that here. Um, Of note... This is the longest mic song ever. This is over 23 minutes long. There are a few that reach the 22-minute mark, but this one is the longest jam that they've ever played out of mic song. And this particular jam is really in line with the November 2nd Cross-Eyed and Painless, the November 3rd Tweezer, and the November 7th uh, Bathtub Gin uh, from uh, Rupp Arena that would happen just one night later. In that Fish sounds in a lot of cases... At this point, the first week in November, like a completely different band than they did even a week earlier. Yeah, this is uh, very much on a level of what the hell happened. All positive, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're thinking that um, we've got a theory that like Remaining Light was a massive weight off the band, in addition to being an opening into a new uh, like um, a new portal of creativity for them going forward. For months, uh, almost in many ways, years, it seems like they've been searching for a style that would all allow them to play on an equal plane and allow Trey the luxury to step back from center stage, thus allowing Mike Fish and Page the chance to lead the jams. And we think that the funky minimalism of Remaining Light was the key to all this. And what's interesting is that kind of up to this point, most of the Mike Song's second jams were based in two styles. For example, um, with June 20th, 1995, uh, from Blossom Center in Cuyahoga Falls, that was all noise or darkness. And versus Melody from uh, December 30th, 1993, and uh, December 1st, 1995, from, from Hershey. This Mike Song is kind of uh, the first of an overtly funky approach to the second Mike's jam which would also be featured in November 22nd, 1997. Um, December 2nd, 1997, from Philadelphia. Easily a top three mic song for me. Ridiculously funky uh, John Fishman-led jam. We've got April 3rd, 1998, from the Island Tour, and uh, July 17th, 1998. 
stepping back and looking at this from a bigger picture, the significance of the show overall, November 6, 1996. So I think we'd both be in agreement. Fall 96 was kind of a weird tour. It's probably, in a lot of cases, the most overlooked and, in some ways, underappreciated tour in fish history. I would say the only competition is fall 2014. Um, but it's also really clearly split by two halves. The shows leading up to Halloween are more or less mediocre to subpar to bad. The only really highlights coming in fits and spurts. And then after Halloween, the band just completely shifts and goes on a tear from November 2nd through the tour's conclusion in uh, Las Vegas on, on uh, December 6th. Just to chime in, when I think of yeah. early fall, early fall 1996 kind of reminds me of where Fish was in, um, I want to say, 2011. In the sense that that. there were some fits of greatness, but mostly very songy, planned out set lists that kind of sound exactly like they look on paper. Yeah, yeah. There's no real, there's not a lot of surprises. Um, I was going to ask you, did you see any shows on this tour? Uh, Yeah, the one show I saw was um, October 23rd, 1996 from Hartford, Connecticut. That was one of the better ones because the entire second set was augmented by having a second drummer that uh, had Bob Galati. So at one point in the tweezer, you had Fishman on drums, Bob Galati on drums, and also this was uh, one of the tours where Trey was using his his mini percussion kit. Yes. yes. So you would have uh, like three drummers going at once. And also uh, they played Yamar. There was a big like dual drum jam in the middle of it, and they opened with Brother. So that was, uh, that was one of the better shows and think set one was pretty good as well. But kind of getting to your point, you know, comparing this to 2011, um, which I would agree with. I would also say, you know, 2014, just based on the fact that the set lists are, they feel pre-written in some cases, but more than anything, the band in fall 96 was playing in an incredibly tight rotation. Bust outs and rarities played little to no role in the overall construction of the tour. And this show is really a case in point. The longest gap in this show, um, in terms of a song's last time being played, was Fast Enough For You at 18 shows. This was the first performance of Fast Enough For You since August 13th, 1996. So it shows you the band was playing a very condensed tour. A lot of these songs are being played every third, fourth, fifth, and sixth show. Um... I think was this the tour in support of Billy Breathes? Yeah, yeah, it was. Because all of the songs they debuted in 1995 were the ones that mostly ended up on Billy Breathes, and I'm pretty sure that album came out in the fall of 1996. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought that this was uh, this was the tour that was in support of Billy Breathes, which has a lot to do with why you know they're they're pushing these songs the same sort of way that. 2014, you heard them pushing Fuego songs over and over and over again. Um, Getting a lot of swept away in the steep in 1996. A lot of swept away and a lot of steep. Um, One kind of little thing that I've always loved about this tour, and this goes in the sense of the fact that it is a very tight rotation, um, you get, for really the last time in the band's history, songs like Reba, David Bowie, Y.E.M., Harry Hood, all being played in the same second set. I know that 11.9 has like three massive songs right in the second set. Uh, 11.29, you've got a 
Like a You Enjoy Myself, Late in a Set, followed two songs later by a Harry Hood. Just setless oddities with classics that you would just never hear um, past Fall 96, either because in 1997 they completely took most of those songs out of their catalog, or 98, 99, 2000, they started really uh, introducing you know a lot of bust-outs, a lot of covers, and um, just move beyond simply playing these classics. Um, but, you know, in terms of where we're at in the tour right now, the thing that's really fascinating is that once they turned the corner from Halloween, the band went on a tear, and it was like they were shot out of a cannon. And shows in the second half of the tour, um, November 2nd, this is the famous show that was released on DVD with Carl Perazzo. You've got your cross and Painless. and Carl Sky. Sky. Uh, Coral Sky. Coral Sky, Sky. Amphitheater, right. Yeah. Uh, November 6th, the show we're talking about. Um, November 13th is a really fantastic show. Um, November 15th, which is the M show. November 27th from Seattle on Jimi Hendrix's birthday. Has a really excellent down disease in a great second set. November 30th from Sacramento. Um, really, really beautiful second set with some special guests. December 1st from uh, UCLA. Excellent tweezer, excellent Reba in the second set. That whole show, I would uh, encourage anyone to listen to that for some high, high mm. energy fish. And then, love uh, a future archival like release from that show. That show begs for more attention. It really does. There's um, just like the entire first set. I think the first six songs are just um, you know segue, segue, segue. Just complete energy. It's unbelievable. Um, and then finally the tour finale. Uh, December 6th doesn't really need much introduction you all should have heard it um, it's an unbelievable show with one of my favorite second sets and encores that's ever been played and we've got for jam highlights this part of the tour certainly the cross-eyed antelope from November 2nd the famous Rup Gin from November 7th the simple from November 8th uh, the Susie Greenberg in the 2001 from November 13th November 18th had a 2001 in a huge simple. November 19th had the bathtub gin in the vibration of life and the grooves in the M. November 2017 had the huge down disease. December 1st had a very good tweezer. December 4th had a crazy mic song. And December 6th they had the simple, they had the Weekapod, they had Les Claypool, Cowboy Sweetheart. You name it, that show had it. And it seemed... Like, just in the going from east to west, it's clear that the band loosened up and they gained much momentum as uh, clear from November 2nd set two. But it really gets prevalent once you get to the back-to-back gems on November 6th and November 7th. I mean, they really started the jam at length of confidence, a yielding desire to push the sound further than it had gone in the previous 12 months, and in some cases further than it had ever gone. Uh, but kind of what differentiated this kind of experimentation from what they were doing in 1994 1995 was there was a much clearer focus on melody and rhythmic diversity whereas uh the 94 95 stuff that we've discussed is much more much more dissonance taking things apart scronk whereas um you know 96 was somewhat different in that regard and on that note, I think we're best served by playing a few minutes of the jam in the Mike song from uh, November 6, 1996 from Knoxville, Tennessee.
you guys enjoyed that. A little bit of a preview of uh, some future fish jams in there. Some very danceable, catchy grooves. So our first segment of music that we're going to feature here focuses on really the first section of that jam there, the drum and bass uh, specifically. It's kind of a type of music and, and thematic style of music that I think David and I have always wanted to focus on. We've got two really different approaches here for drum and bass. Um, so mine is a little bit more traditional when you think about like dance music, when you think about what Fish was playing with in fall of 96 and especially 1997 and 1998. Um, I'm going to feature a song here by the UK producer Burial. The song is called Kindred off of 2012's Kindred EP. So Burial is a UK producer. Um, uh, real name is William Emmanuel Bevan. He is an extremely mercurial and uh, um, kind of low-key musician whose identity was unknown to the larger public until 2008, which was a full year after his landmark LP, Untrue, was released. Um, It actually wasn't until his album, Untrue, was up for the Mercury Music Prize that people really began to speculate about his identity. He kind of was able to just release music, went out into the public, went out into the world via the internet, and nobody really asked anything. At the time, um, because Untrue received such critical acclaim, tabloids speculated that he was either Richard D. James, otherwise known as Aphex Twin, or Norman Cook. Uh, Fatboy Slim. Yes, yes. He um, identified himself in early August 2008, posting a picture on his MySpace page, which is quite a time warp to think about that being a way that you reveal yourself. And uh, noted that, hey, I'm just a regular guy. I want to make music. Please don't bother me. And um, based on the music he's been able to make in the years since then, nobody really has. It's uh, it's kind of been a, a good little marriage for him in that sense. Um, so Burial grew up in uh, the UK, a fan of jungle and garage music, which is really early 90s rave DIY UK electronic scene type of music. Um, and he used both as kind of a platform and a leaping off point for his own experimentation. He noted that his older brother gave him many of these records as a starter kit of sorts. And he compared hearing them as a kid to the first time that you watched Terminator or Alien, saying it was like he was hearing a completely new world. Um, From a programming standpoint, Burial avoids using trackers or sequencers when editing and recording. So because of this, once he makes an edit or a change, he really can't unchange anything that he does. So in the truest sense, his editing, his producing... um, you know, is as kind of live and in the moment and um, intentional as someone who's playing an actual instrument. Um, He wants his drums to sound raw. He wants them to sound shattered and dirty, which they do. You're going to definitely hear that throughout this uh, segment of Kindred that we're going to play. He feels like if they sound too perfect, it sounds like he's using a sequencer and he never wants it to sound perfect. It always has to sound a little bit off. And really, the rhythm is critical to his sound. You'll hear that in this. He seeks a truly UK sound, which is reliant on rolling drums and vocals. It's an overall mix of hardcore underground and uh, really relative urban music. Um, Derek uh, Walms- Walmsley, who is a writer for The Wire magazine, 
wrote about him um, saying that his snares and his hi-hats are covered in fuzz and phaser. They're like cobwebs on forgotten instruments, and the mix is rough and ready rather than endlessly polished. Perhaps most importantly, his bass lines sound like nothing else on earth. Distorted and heavy, yet also warm and earthy, they resemble the, they resemble the balmy gust of air that precedes an underground train. Kindred, when it was released in early 2012, was was uh, came into the musical landscape to near universal acclaim. This was his first post-untrue statement that seemed to really hold up to the latter's brilliance, and probably the only other recording of his that still holds up with the same power um, on kind of a unanimous level. This was a mark evolution for him in that these songs are noticeably longer than anything he'd produced before, upwards of 12 minutes. The sound is bigger than anything he's made before, and all of these songs have multiple sections within them. Um, really, for me, this was a, a, a touch point in getting into you know, production and getting into any sort of like DJ-inspired electronic music, UK underground, because these songs tend to sound like how fish jams do and that they have multiple sections that flow in and out of one to the other. There's many ideas um, uh, going in and out of each of these songs. You hear kind of layers building and building, and then that idea takes over. It's really, really uh, incredible and thrilling stuff, and I would encourage anybody who enjoys the section that we're going to play here to really seek out the uh, the overall EP, um, Kindred. Yeah, just to chime in, uh, when I think of bur- uh, when I think of burial, I think of a uh, extremely paranoid running for your life and like the Lower East Side of New York City, circa 1993 music. It was <laughs> it was not whatever the Lower East Side looks like in 2017. It was not like that in the early 90s. There's like a whole genre of music called like Lower East Side Hellscape Rock, which is just about how dangerous it is to be in that part of New York in the early 90s. Uh, Bands like Unsane and whatnot. Different topic with different podcasts, but certainly like Burial, you listen to it, you go from being the chaser to the chased. And uh, it's kind of great for that reason. Yeah, it definitely has an urban wasteland feel to it, uh, kind of very dystopian in a lot of ways. This was a really big EP for me when I was living in Korea in 2013. Um, fit the mood and the weather, especially in the winter, overlooking these like gray Stalinistic buildings with factories in the distance. And knowing the ominous threat of Kim Jong-un was uh, lurking in the distance, um, uh, Burial followed this EP up with two really excellent EPs in 2013, Truant Rough Sleeper, and then later Rival Dealer, that these were played by me during the wee hour parties that we used to have in Korea in our apartment, and just take me back immediately. So um, He hasn't uh, been heard from since, either. I think he's been pretty darn quiet. He has. I think he puts one thing out in 2014. I'd have to double check on it, but yeah, not a, not a ton since this period, and, and so there was a lot of music being produced by him, and then it just kind of uh, faded away a little bit. But let's go ahead, um, listen to a little bit of Kindred here, and uh, I hope that you all enjoy this.
Okay. Now, the band that I'm going to discuss to talk about the drum and bass section as it relates to the Mike Song Jam is one of my favorite bands called The Dismemberment Plan. Now, they were uh, a 1990s indie rock band based out of Washington, D.C., consisting of Travis Morrison on vocals and guitar, Jason Cadell on, uh, I guess, guitar and keys, Eric Axelson on bass guitar, and Joe Easley on drums. They were an extremely rhythmic indie rock band augmented by, you know, kind of the constant wink-wink delivery and very clever lyrics of Travis Morrison. And they certainly have some lineage in um, the distinctly Washington, D.C. brand of arty punk rock alongside bands such as Fugazi and Jawbox and uh, the more spazier Q and Not You, although they actually came slightly after Dismemberment Plan, also with some elements of hip-hop and R&B. I mean, one can almost see them as sort of predicting the New York City early 2000s dance punk craze and the DFA level by a few years, except the D-Plan actually had a much better rhythm section than any of those bands. My God, did they have a good rhythm section. And... To me, it's extremely obvious that they love the talking heads. There's lots of talking heads here from the rhythms to uh, Travis Morrison's highly David Byrne-style uh, version of like speak singing. Um, in their heyday, they released four albums, starting in 1996, which is just an exclamation point. They put out that this movement plan is terrified in 1997. Emergency and I in 1999 and Change in 2001. There was a a reunion album in 2013 entitled Uncanny Valley. I would say when you're talking about the dismemberment plan, certainly Emergency and I is the one album that both conventional wisdom and I think the band themselves cite as their peak. And, you know, indeed, it's got amazing songs like The City, Memory Machine, what do you want me to say? And spider in the sh- uh, spider in the snow. Definitely, it's uh, it's the hits record. Like when you um, you know, when you end up at like indie dance night, I mean, you're probably going to hear one of those. I'm actually a bigger fan of the uh, the swan song change, which to these ears is kind of aged somewhat better than Emergency and I. And while it's not quite as manic, the songwriting is at a very very high level. And while Travis Morrison is certainly the front man, he writes the lyrics, these songs are rendered far more potent, I would say deadly even, by the rhythm section of Eric Axelson and Joe Easley, the latter of whom is essentially, he's a percussion robot. The drums on these records are mixed loudly and they're placed up front. The snare noise is a thing of beauty. And uh, while every album on Change, to me, is excellent. It kind of begs to be heard all in one sitting. It's a percussion tour to first, but the uh, songs that we're going to play, I actually picked out three of them. We're going to play segments of the song Superpowers, the song Other Side, and the album closer Ellen and Ben. Just uh, as an aside, Other Side has a very vicious drum and bass intro to lead in and um, I've read in interviews with Travis Morrison where he says that uh, this song was more or less a wholesale knockoff of uh, the late 90s early 2000 kind of jamtronic band Lake Trout from Baltimore I guess 
just remember him playing was watching Lake Trout one night and they kind of turned to each other and said, okay, let's just sound like this. And out pop other side. So the only time I ever caught that dismemberment plan was in 2013 on their reunion tour. And I mean, Joe Easley, he was kind of put up, um, he's on a drum riser behind the rest of the band. He wears gym shorts and motorcycle gloves when he plays. It's like an athletic exercise, and he doesn't make mistakes. And there's lots of very good YouTube footage um, from their most recent tours that exemplify this so to me it's just very fun to watch and he's like a machine in lockstep and it really comes forward in the songs that we're going to play so once again this is the dismemberment plan with uh superpowers other side and ellen and ben
Hope you guys enjoyed our first segment there that focused on kind of different approaches to drum and bass. We're going to take a quick break here and talk a bit about new albums that have come out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so kind of sticking with the theme of this episode, I'm going to talk about a uh, band called Odonis, Odonis, and their album is called No Pop. This is a Toronto industrial and noise-based band. This is a, a trio's. Uh, this is their fourth record. Um, this band started as a noise-induced surf rock band and has fully transpired into industrial noise here on No Pop. Um, the whole album really moves in a very plodding, unified sense. It feels like one massive piece of music that's broken apart into songs and all is very unified and very thematic. It really has to be heard in one sitting. And uh, at just around 37 minutes, it's totally possible to do that. Since droning guitars, wailing noise machines, excessive electronic interplay, this record is filled with wall of sound, dystopian mindfuckery. It almost sounds like that uh, scene in The Matrix where you get the first glimpse of what the world looks like at this point in time, and Neo and Morpheus are sitting on red leather chairs, and Morpheus informs Neo of the battle lost between the humans and the machines, and uh, it just sounds and looks very ominous and dystopian in that sense. This is uh, really, in a lot of cases, a less is more LP, which is really what I enjoy about it. The sound here, there's a lot of space throughout... um, But there is not an avoidance of overt experimentation throughout the album as there is some psychedelia that's laced throughout and uh, is really essential in a lot of these tracks. Um, As we move here into winter towards the latter end of November and into December, the days get shorter, the nights are longer. Sometimes these are the kind of records that you just want to hear every so often. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this as your uh, daily morning commute record don't think that this is really what you want to be listening to sitting down to dinner with either a loved one or on a date of any sort but uh there's definitely a space for records like these it definitely connected with me and uh if you're enjoying if you've enjoyed any aspect of the rhythmic section of this uh this overall episode i think that you would definitely get this uh and dig it so odonis odonis no pop um dave what do you got for us just to dovetail on that, the Odonis Odonis record sings some very nice with Burial. Uh, burial. Yes. They're uh, yes. dark, paranoid twins, so to speak. So I have a record that is the complete opposite of paranoid industrial noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the latest record from a band called the Turnpike Troubadours. Album is called A Long Way From Your Heart. These guys are an Oklahoma-based uh, country rock band on their fifth album. They're a sextet, and in addition to bass and drums and guitar, they kind of earn their country rock bona fides by employing a full-time fiddle player and a steel guitar player. The front man is Evan Felker, who uh, sings, and I think he writes most of the lyrics. And really, this is pretty simply just a well-produced, well-written country rock album that, while less than edgy, succeeds simply because it's just a complete package. Plus the choruses are very sturdy and the lyrics reveal uh, interesting nuance over repeated listens. I mean, I'm sort of 
at a loss for descriptors aside from very well put together country rock album, and that's fine. Songs are important. These guys have songs in spades. And at this stage of my life, sometimes it's all I want to listen to is just well-produced, good songs from guys who care. And I think that describes uh, the Turnpike Troubadours very nicely. I can definitely second that. There's um, It's way too complicated of a world right now. There's way too much happening, way too much beating us down. This is, a, this is definitely a record that I think both of us need and a lot of our listeners would need uh, um, just to kind of ease back and in, kind of enjoy a little bit of life at, uh, for, for a brief moment in time. You can never have too many back porch records in this day and age. You can't. You're absolutely right about that. (laughs) All right. Now we're going to get to segment number two, which is a preview of a new sound. And in terms of relating back to the Mike song from November 6, 1996, as we said, that second jam is really kind of um, indicative of what Fish would do in 1997, which is to say Trey would lay back. There'd be more wah sounds coming from him. It would be much more of a democratic process, and that can be seen in that uh, that second Mike song jam. So I'm going. The first band that we're going to touch on, I'm going to talk about, is actually a band that I think I had originally talked about in um, the episode where we covered the 1990s Madchester scene. I believe that was awesome. We talked about some Baker's Dozen jams in that show. And that band is the Charlatans UK. UK standing for United Kingdom, because there was a, a 60s band, I think, in San Francisco called the Charlatans. So for it's not confusion, on these shores, they're called the Charlatans UK. The song is called Backroom Window. It's a B-side. So the Charlatans, as I said, they were a, a band from the 1990s Manchester scene that still exists to this day. Um, they're actually have far more in common with the Rolling Stones than Happy Mondays or Primal Scream. And I think that key to their longevity is that uh, they kind of survive by converting from a baggy dance band to aping every classic rock act one can name, largely Exile on Main Street Stones and Bob Dylan. And they aren't really shy about it either. Uh, they've got a song off their 1995 self-titled record called Just When You're Thinking Things Over, which is a whole so rip off of uh, the Stones' Torn and Frayed. They have another song called Here Comes a Soul Saver, which just jacks the riff from uh, Pink Floyd's Fearless. But it's okay. The pain tribute. And I wanted to revisit them because in addition to being one of my favorite bands, uh, when I first talked about them, I was kind of falling asleep. So I'm uh, much more awake at this point. The album uh, that this B-side is from was in 1994. They put out a record called Up To Our Hips. It was their third album, and it was produced by uh, this British hippie guitarist named Steve Hillage, who uh, I think he's probably best known for kind of being a goofy dude with some uh, serious echo and delay-heavy guitar solos. And he was a member of this band Gong, and I'd be lying if I said my familiarity with Gong was that extensive, but kind of what I've heard calls to mind a early Zappa in a mystical forest. Make of that what you will. I know that um, in the late 80s and early 90s, in addition to producing albums, he also kind of had a second career being uh, like an ambient artist. So this album, Up to Our Hips, 
because of uh, the Steve Hillage production, was very heady, psychedelic levels of uh, lots of reverb and fuzz, almost like the record was covered with gauze. Uh, the front man, Tim Burgess, doesn't really step out that much, and he's kind of mixed a bit low in the mix. There's uh, songs in this record called, like, Patrol, and I Never Want an Easy Life. Uh, they're percussive, and they're rendered somewhat mysterious from the production. Now, just a year later, in 1995, the Charlatans' fourth album was self-titled, and it was way more in-your-face. The songs were designed to be anthems. Tim Burgess was louder. He was mixed much higher. This was very much their look-at-me-I-am-the-captain-now move. They even started that album with an instrumental, which means they know that they're hot shit. Whenever like British rock bands start their albums instrumentals, this is when they're saying, okay, we're here. This is what we're going to do. And I think uh, Stephen Hillage helped out in this album slightly, but I think it was self-produced for the most part. So in between Up To Our Hips and the self-titled Charlton's album, there were B-sides. Um, in particular... Two B-sides stand out, uh, one called Green Flashing Eyes and Backroom Window, both of which were produced by Steve Hillage. So they still feature the gauzy production from Up To Our Hips, but the vocal melodies are far more pronounced. Tim Burgess is far punchier in these two songs. So I always said that these B-sides serve as the bridge between the Steve Hillage-produced Psychedelia and then Tim Broad is really coming out of his shell over the next few Charlatans albums, including uh, their career peak, which was 1997's Telling Stories. Highly, highly recommend that album. So this song, Backroom Window, it's uh, featured on the all B-Sides album, Songs from the Other Side, which I own, but is not on Spotify. So uh, for the Spotify mix, we'll give you another Charlatans song from that era to listen to. And uh, this song... In addition to rocking very hard, has uh, blatant allusions to uh, Tommy Era Who in the lyrics because, you know, that's kind of what they love to do. And uh, just briefly on the topic of B-sides, the Charlatans were very good at B-sides. Most 90s Brit rock bands were quite good at B-sides. Certainly, you know, Radiohead which we might get to later in this episode, had many things like that. Um, Blur, lots of B-sides, The Verb, Spiritualize, all those bands. So we are going to play Backroom Window by The Charlatans, which was a 1994 B-side off the Up To Our Hips record.
All right. Thank you for that overview there of the Charlatans, Dave, and uh, a lot of the B-side output that they did in the mid-90s. Some fantastic stuff in there from for you guys. Um, next band we're going to talk about is, uh, full disclosure, one of Dave's my favorite bands. We've talked about them already a couple of times on this podcast. No, 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 no. It's not the war on drugs. Not the war on drugs. Though there is Drink. a war on drugs quota for the episode. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about Radiohead. Um, so where does Radiohead fit into this mic song? Well, like we were talking about in this segment, this is the preview of a new sound. So you're going to get two songs from Radiohead here. It's a double dose. You're going to get Street Spirit off of the Benz, the climactic closing track on the album, followed by Talk Show Host, which was its B-side, which came on the Romeo and Juliet uh, soundtrack as well. So the band that closed out the Benz was Street Spirit and then opened up with the song Airbag on OK Computer just two years later. It's essentially two completely different bands. But in this song, as well as talk show host, you start to hear that transition. You start to hear that preview to where Radiohead is going long-term in their career. So Street Spirit, this is an A minor arpeggio-led uh, song. It has a soaring chorus, a lot of synths to it. This is really in line with what we're going to hear on both OK Computer and even to a certain extent on Amnesiac and Kid A. Um, the Benz, this is just a fucking fantastic album. This was the second album Radiohead put out. It's incredibly guitar-centric. There's an anthemic feel to it. I mean, the guitar is just center point on this record. It sounds so great live. It makes you want to pump your fist. I mean, this is anthemic Brit rock in 1995. This is like peak period of this genre. And this is really where Radiohead fit into at the most point, or the biggest point in their career with Brit, Brit rock. Um, however, Street Spirit, the last song in the album, like we said, it points the way to the future. And this song, it actually reached number five on the UK singles chart and was the last single to be released from the Benz. So this was a song that the band really clearly liked. They wanted it to be their last real statement from this early period in their career. And it was received really well. All the B-sides on this single, Bishop's Robes, Banana Company, Molasses, uh, these all songs, they kick ass. Um, and just like the aforementioned Charlton song, Backroom Window, Radiohead was really, really good at making B-sides. And uh, they were they were in line with a lot of successful 90s Britpop bands in making in uh, releasing B-sides. Um, so you... You, you'll, you'll hear here both in Street Spirit as well as Talk Show Host a real kind of unified feel and just excellent songwriting throughout. So, yeah, as Brian was saying, Talk Show Host was one of the B-sides to Street Spirit and, you know, kind of paved the way towards OK Computer that it's a very sinister, quite paranoid song. I believe it had some use of synthesizers. And what's interesting is that the version that was on Street Spirit was remixed by the, the British uh, the British DJ Nelly Hooper for inclusion on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Uh, actually, Hooper was instrumental in producing and curating all the songs that album and soundtrack albums were actually really good business back in 1996. Remember, 
I was 17 at the time. My sister was 14. She doesn't really share my, my musical obsessions, but she did get the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, and that was probably the coolest piece of music that she ever owned. I mean, in addition to talk show hosts, it has uh, that great garbage song, Number One Crush. Um, I kind of forget what else it has on there, but there was alternative rock radio really played the heck out of talk show hosts, which when you hear it now and think about what you hear now on the radio is kind of kind of interesting in that it's not exactly uplifting, but it's certainly one of the better Radiohead B-sides of the era, which considering the quality of which they had, is uh, it's quite impressive. And let's say, suffice to say, whether you guys want it or not, there will absolutely be a Radiohead deep dive episode at some point in the not-too-distant future. It's going to take us some time to put together and do it right. Let's just say for now that if for some odd reason you don't own a copy of the Benz or haven't even heard the Benz, then you're in for one heck of a life discovery when yeah. you do. Yeah, I got to give a, a quick shout out. I was, uh, as we were planning this episode, I was talking with a buddy about this idea. To, um, I'm not sure if you have this, Dave. I have a, a couple friends who like Beyond the Pond but aren't real big fish fans. And um, so buddy of mine, Ryan Smith, uh, huge Radiohead fan, not a big fish fan. And we were talking about the origins of this episode and the kind of ideas behind it um, and uh, totally pushed me down the path of, of saying we, we got to go with Radiohead. And um, he and I were both talking about our first times listening to the band. Um, the the Benz was actually the album that he was introduced to Radiohead through. For me, it was OK Computer, and I didn't discover the Benz until much later. And um, I, for me personally, listening to the Benz was like this rediscovery of the fact that Radiohead could really play live instruments. Because <laughs> I, 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 I probably had gone through the great live, yeah, and I'd gone so through good. OK Computer, Kid A, Amnesiac, Hail to the Thief, uh, era, you know, just this onslaught of excellent records and that was what i thought radiohead was and someone was like you gotta hear the bends and i was like oh my god they can play guitars but uh shout out to my buddy ryan uh who i know will be listening to this and um i hope that uh this brings back really good memories of his drives to and from culver's when he was uh like 16 17 years old i mean culver's that's like the fast food chain in the Midwest, right? Yeah, he was a fry cook, and uh, every he said, "Oh god, he must have made so many fucking cheese curds." He said every time he throws on the bends, he can smell the deep fryer. <laughs> can smell the fried cheese curds from Culver's. My goodness. So let's go ahead. Let's listen to some Radiohead here. We always can use some more Radiohead in our lives, and uh, yeah, look forward to. We'll do another deep dive episode uh, like we did with Wilco uh, into Radiohead and. Be a lot of fun, a lot of time will be spent, but for now, let's just listen to a little bit of a snippet of when Radiohead previewed where they were going.
Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode i uh, hope you guys enjoyed it so just to recap the songs that we played here uh in segment one which focused on drum and bass which was sonically really connected to the drum and bass jam in the 11 6 1996 mic song we had burials kindred off of 2012's kindred ep followed by a trio of dismemberment plant songs off of the album Change. We had Superpowers, Other Side, and Ellen and Ben. And then in our second segment here, which we talked about a band previewing a new sound, a new sound to come, we had uh, the Charlatans UK Backroom Window, one of their great B-sides from the mid-90s, followed by Radiohead Double Dose here of Street Spirit, and it's B-side talk show host Street Spirit off of the Benz. Talk show host was, again, it's B-side, but it was also on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. So just a reminder that uh, we are active on social media. You can find us on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. It's one word. We've got a Medium page, medium.com slash beyond the pond. And on Spotify, we've got our Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist, where we try to update it best we can with uh, the songs that you hear in each episode. At this point, I think the master list is over 100 songs. At some point, it's going to get so burst, we'll have to do volume two. For now, (laughs) you've got um, Beyond the Pond podcast songs. Put it on shuffle, all the music, none of the Brian and Dave. It's good stuff, and... Um, publishing structure, you guys should know uh, by now, but just to review, we uh, publish every other Tuesday. As we all know here on uh, Beyond the Pond, Tuesdays have absolutely no feel, so it's a great time to kick back, listen to uh, Great Fish Jam, deep dive into a period in fish, and then discover three to four new bands. Um, so this episode's coming out here, I believe, late November. We've got a couple more planned for the end of 2017. Some really fun stuff lined up here and uh, already starting to plan out some really great stuff for early 2018. A few more guests, a few more deep dives. Uh, Very, very excited to keep this going. Thank you guys, everyone who's been listening, who's been following along, who's been spreading the word. Please continue to do so. It's really exciting for us to see this little uh, podcast experiment grow. Finally, just wanted to do uh, a tribute to an artist who I believe as this recording date passed two weeks ago. Gordon Downey, the frontman, lead singer, lyricist for the Canadian rock band, The Tragically Hip. He was actually diagnosed with uh, brain cancer, I believe it was March of 2016, when I think the public at large found out. Tragically Hip had one final very emotional summer tour, which culminated in August of 2016 with a final concert in uh, their home city of Kingston. 
Kingston, Ontario, which was sold out. It was streamed over the BBC in Canada. I watched it. It was a very, very emotional evening. Now, I first became aware of this band in 1994 when they uh, played Saturday Night Live with Dan Aykroyd was the host. They came out and they played two songs off of their Day for Night album. Now, I grew up in Connecticut. I reside in New York. I'm not Canadian. I think I saw the Tragically Hip in concert about 11 times, and yet they can't quite possibly mean as much to me as they do to legions of Canadians. I think basically Gordon Downey, you could describe him as Bruce Springsteen cross Michael Stipe, and then you're not really even getting that close. He was an incredible frontman, an incredible lyricist who really dug deep into a serious well of uh, like Canadian history and Canadian folklore. And I always say everything I know about Canadian history, I learned from tragically hip lyrics. I guess some people thought of him as uh, the poet laureate of that country. I know certainly the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, is um, a friend and big fan who was very shaken up. And even though we kind of knew this death was inevitable when it finally came for uh, – you know, fans of the band that didn't make it any less sad. But certainly, uh, the Tragically Hip is an incredible band with several records and uh, kind of warranting a deep dive onto their own. I would certainly recommend you pick a bunch of their albums up. And uh, it's just going to be a sadder world without Gordon Downey in it. And on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And thank you very much for getting this far. And come back in two weeks and we will join together and go beyond the pond. Hey, hey, my word.